You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. After the two days, he departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see the signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and, he said to, and they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever, fever left him. The father knew that that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed, and all of his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. All right, good. Uh, everybody hear me okay, even in the back there? Okay. I'll try to project well this morning. Um, we live, uh, there's, one of the concerns that I have uh, growing up is that I think that there's a lot of people that I know that have kind of a cliche version of Christianity. They have like what I would call a bumper sticker theology. So I went on the internet and Googled up some famous uh, Christian bumper stickers. And hopefully you'll see what I mean here. Um, some of the classics are up here. In case of rapture, this car will be unmanned. Um, be fishers of men. You catch him, he'll clean him. I, I, that, that makes me a little uncomfortable because cleaning a fish is, I don't think, what God is doing to us. So I think maybe the worst one up there is down here on the left. If Jesus had a gun, he'd still be alive today. That's horrible theology, by the way. Now, it's humorous to look at that, but it's, it's actually kind of sad. If you have bumper stickers on your car, I'm not trying to pick on you. But my fear is, is that this is about as deep as people go in terms of their relationship with Jesus. They've got kind of the Christian, Christian bookstore mug with like a verse on it that doesn't mean what they think it means. And, uh, and there's just this deep kind of shallow understanding of who Jesus is. And, uh, and that can be very dangerous in terms, of, um, in terms of our faith because our faith rests on really solid, actual truth. And when we soundbite it and we clip it, down to just these little cliche things, we uh, may inadvertently be undercutting the saving power of, of, the, of the Word of God. I think the one I want to talk about today is on the next slide here. Jesus is my homeboy. Jesus is my homeboy. Our, our message title today is actually, your, Jesus is not your homeboy. Jesus is not your homeboy. Okay? Now, I want to give you just a definition of homeboy in case you aren't up with the times and what with all the kids are saying these days but homeboy defined literally defined is a person from the same locality as oneself this is one of my homeboys we're from the same town we grew up together we're bros a close friend or fellow gang member as someone to kick it with and so this idea of Jesus being our homeboy, as if there's this kind of this casual relationship is like, I kind of put Jesus kind of in a, in a headlock and, and rub his head and go, man, he's got my back, I got his, is, uh, is Jesus is not your homeboy. 
Um, and we need to be careful that we don't take a casual approach to Jesus. And so as we look at our passage today, uh, John 4, 43 through 54, I want to give you three, uh, three points today. One is the danger of familiarity with Jesus. We're going to see that early on in the passage. Secondly, we will see the development of faith in Jesus through the healing of the official son. And then lastly, we'll see the demonstration of power from Jesus. This is the second sign that he does in Galilee. So if you're following along in your text, that will be our outline today uh, and drawing these principles from Scripture into our lives and what this text has to tell us today. So Jesus is not your homeboy. So the, the passage in the context of the passage is that John, who is one of Jesus's closest disciples, he's not just one of the 12, but he's one of the inner three. He got to see Jesus glorified on the mountain. He got to be he got an inside look at everything that Jesus ever did. And John, when he wrote his gospel, the one that we're looking at today, he is the last of the gospel writers. So Matthew, Mark and Luke were all written before this. And, uh, and John is very familiar that these other Gospels have already been circulating. And so he decides that there's some things that still need to be told about Jesus. And so then he writes this fourth Gospel. The first three Gospels are often called the Synoptic Gospels, which means same view, which same perspective. Those first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, tell a lot of the same stories uh, and arrange them a little bit differently, but basically tell the same stories. Most of the book of John is totally new stories that you don't have in any of the other Gospels. It seems to me that Paul, that John, writing a little bit later in his life, wants us to understand that there's more, there's more things to know about Jesus. In fact, in John 20, 30, and 31, he says that there are many signs and wonders that Jesus did, and if if we were to try to write them all down, the, the world itself couldn't contain the books. And so John is going, let me, let me, let me uh, give you some of the eyewitness testimony of things I experienced because I want you to truly know that you can have eternal life through Jesus. Now through his gospel, we'll see a couple of things going on. Is that as Jesus demonstrates his power as the Son of God and as he teaches many things with authority and as he proves that he is the one from God, there will be this contrasting um, response to him. We saw this in John chapter 2, when after uh, he goes down and he clears the temple, there are some people that come to him. There are some people who, um, who respond positively to him, but he doesn't entrust himself to them. Because there are some people that just are following Jesus because he's entertaining, because he does some neat things. But in the, in the, throughout interspersed, we have these interactions with Jesus individually, where he has individual interactions with people. And you see uh, these, uh, the contrast between people that are just kind of attracted to Jesus as kind of a homeboy and those who really come to him because he's the savior of the world. Okay? And so that's really what we have here is that um, in John chapter 4, Jesus met the woman at the well. You remember hearing about that last week. John met the woman at the well. A Samaritan woman who is not someone he should be interacting with. For one, she's a woman and, and good Jewish rabbis didn't have one-on-one -on -one conversations with women in that kind of setting. She had kind of a bad reputation. She came from the wrong uh, pedigree. She was part of the Samaritan dogs. She was not someone that you would talk to, but Jesus approached her and showed her her, her need. And then she responded positively to Jesus, and then she went back to her hometown 
and because of what Jesus had done in her, the whole town believed. And if you look at John chapter 4, verses 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. This maybe is the most productive two days of Jesus' ministry in many ways. A whole town comes to him, and they're just eating up everything that he's teaching. They just they are so um, in love with Jesus. In verse 41, and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, but we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Okay? So then that leads into our text. So you've had this remarkable response by people who you would not expect to respond positively to Jesus. It's the people who you don't expect who seem to see who Jesus is clearly and approach him rightly. But John again and again shows us that not everyone that looks like they're uh, attracted to Jesus really is coming to him in the right way. And look at verse 43. Now, this is really interesting. So this is the danger of familiarity with Jesus. The danger of familiarity with Jesus. After two days, he departed for Galilee. This is his home region. He's from Nazareth. And Galilee is kind of the area, kind of the county region there. So he's going back to his home area. After the two days, he departed for Galilee. And then you have in parentheses, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. So that's strange. That's a strange thing because it says he leaves to go there because he knows they're not going to respond well to him. He actually is going because he knows that they're not going to respond rightly. He is going actually to expose the fact that they're, um, he's going to actually prove that a prophet has no honor in his own town. Look at verse 45. So, this is, this is where this is really interesting. So when he came to Galilee... The Galileans welcomed him. Wait a minute. He just said the reason he's leaving this productive ministry in in Samaria is to go to his hometown and not be received rightly. And then he goes there and they receive him. Now, the context there tells us that this is not a right kind of receiving. They welcomed him, having seen that all he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So... Good Jewish people would three times a year go down to Jerusalem for the festivals. They happened to be down there that day when he cleared the temple. And that's what's happening here. So these are good Jewish people who do what they're supposed to do. They're faithful Jews traveling to every feast. Uh, they maybe many of them were at Cana when he turned the water into wine. And then they traveled down and they were in Jerusalem and he upset the tables. And so they go, man... Our neighbor, our, our cousin, our brother here, is the, he's legit, man. He can do some cool stuff, right? If you're at a party and you're running out of adult beverages, it's cool to have Jesus around, right? And when you're in the, and when you're in the temple and maybe those priests aren't doing exactly what you want them to do, Jesus will flip the table. So Jesus is just a great kind of party, uh, just a great guy to have around, right? Um, and so they are, uh, they welcome him. But it's not a like, it's not a reverential welcome. It seems like it's a, hey, this is a guy from our town kind of welcome. They're impressed by Jesus. They're proud he's from their town, but they're really not interested in like kind of bowing down and viewing him. The, the difference between the response that he had in Samaria and here is pretty stark. And Jesus is trying to show that. 
So um, there's three dangers. I'm getting these. Uh, I want to I talk about three dangers revealed here. Uh, I'm stealing these from John Piper. These are not original with me, although I'm modifying his third one. So John Piper does okay, but uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to help him out a little bit here. So I want, I want to point out three dangers here of a familiarity with Jesus. An over-familiarity with Jesus can be very dangerous. There's the pride of attachment to someone special. That's danger number one. The pride of attachment to someone special. Okay? So you come up to someone who is a celebrity, and immediately you whip out the phone, I want to take a selfie with them, right? Is that to honor them? It's actually to honor you, right? Look who I get to be with, right? And so there's a sense in which people want selfies with Jesus. He has, he has kind of a following now. He's kind of got some things, and I want to be near Jesus. I, mean, I want to be attached to someone special. I want, I want Jesus to kind of help me with my brand. I want to get some likes, right? And so there's the, this a pride of attachment to someone special. He can put us or me on the map. Jesus kind of helps my brand a little bit, right? So there's a danger in being kind of in a Christian culture to such that, man, kind of sidling up, Jesus being my homeboy, kind of helps me out a little bit, makes me look good. So that's number one. There's this pride of attachment to someone special. He's from our town. And so we want to be connected to him, not because he's the savior of the world, but because he's got kind of a following. Second danger is this sense of entitlement. He's, he's, he's my brother. He's my cousin. I get dibs, right? The disciples struggled with this all the time. Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, can I have the seat on your right and your left? And it's like, uh, you may not know what you're asking, right? This sense of, I have a special connection with Jesus, so I get dibs. I get special privileges. Um, Jesus' own family did this to him in Luke chapter 8. His mother and brothers came to him, but they could not reach him because of the crowd. And he was told, your mother and brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. They should get kind of special access to you. And Jesus answered, and my, brother and my, bro my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word and do it. So there can be this sense that I think even in the church of like, I was here at this church first, or I was a member longer, or I, you know, and, and, and get this sense of entitlement that somehow I deserve special privileges because I have a little bit closer connection with Jesus, right? So I think there's a little bit of that going on, this welcoming him as a sense of entitlement. He's ours. He's ours. I knew him first, and so I get dibs. So danger number one, the pride of attachment to someone special. Number two, the sense of entitlement that kind of comes with someone rising in popularity. And I, you know, I should, I should do this. I, I, this happens all the time, like with professional athletes. They get, they get drafted and all of a sudden they're making millions of dollars and then everybody's wanting a piece of it, right? And there's a little bit of that, I think, going on here in that Jesus is from their town and there's this, uh, he's ours, we, uh, we, we want to kind of ride his coattails to the top. The third one is the modification of Jesus into our image. The modification of Jesus into our image. So because he's from our town, he's just like us, and he never calls us out on things, right? He's from Nazareth, he's from Galilee, so he's going to, you know, so Galilee is the place to be. And this can be a real danger, danger is that you're so familiar with Jesus that Jesus just always agrees with you. Jesus always agrees with your political stance. He always, believe, he always agrees with your worship style. He always agrees with the things you like in a sermon, and he doesn't disagree with anything that you might say. And so these are all dangers of being overly familiar with Jesus in such a way 
that you just use him to advance your brand, or you think that because you know him or have, have been around him a long time that you get special privileges, or all of a sudden you're so familiar with Jesus that in a sense you've kind of put your image on him, right? Jesus thinks what I think. Jesus votes the way I would vote. Jesus thinks this like I do. So those are the dangers of an over-familiarity with Jesus. And we can be guilty of that. Uh, I have a great concern with my own kids at times because they grow up in a Christian family. They're going to everything. They hear their dad teach all the time. And so Jesus can just kind of be this person we've always known. He's, he does cool stuff. And for the most part, it's just he's very common, right? And that's what's happening here. I have this concern for those of you, like I, I went to like Christian school my whole life. I have a real concern with this, with people who go to Christian schools, is that it can just be, it can just be I've heard this all before. And, um, and, and you begin to lose that sense. These people are so over familiar with Jesus that they've kind of lost their awe of him. And now whenever he does stuff, they don't attribute it to God. They attribute it to Jesus is a cool party trick. He's a cool guy to know. But he's really not someone you bow down to, right, and submit yourself to. So if you're not a Christian here today, maybe you've seen this kind of, um, this kind of over-familiarity, this Jesus is my home by in Christians that you've seen, and you're just like, I'm not interested in that. Let me just say that a sort of casual, over-familiar Christianity ought to be rejected. So if you're not a Christian because you've seen Christians just be a little, like, too cliche about things, you ought to reject that. But let me just encourage you to maybe consider that the Jesus of the Bible is far greater than some Christians actually portray him to be. You know? that maybe the Jesus you're rejecting ought to be rejected because it's not the real Jesus. So sometimes you have to kind of look beyond the Christian culture, sometimes look beyond what you see in Christians, and go, man, I want to know if this Jesus is for real because my life, my soul, my eternity is on the line. So maybe, maybe you're rejecting a Jesus that ought to be rejected because he's not the real Jesus. And I would encourage you to dig into the scriptures even reading the book of John and see who the real Jesus is. Even the people that grew up with Jesus didn't really see him. They were over familiar with him. And if you're a Christian here today, I would ask you the question, have you become overly familiar with Jesus? That he's all of a sudden just kind of a homeboy? Or is he like the Samaritans? Like, this is clearly the son of God. Do you just assume he agrees with you? Do you just assume you get dibs because you followed him first or longer? Do you use Jesus when he's good for your image, but then hide him when he's not? Maybe you love being in love with Jesus more than you actually love Jesus. It's possible to actually love being in love with Jesus more than you actually love Jesus, right? That happens in, like, the love of worshiping Jesus more than the actual worship of Jesus. Right? I love the feeling. I love the atmosphere. I love, you know, I love these different things. And so I, let me just challenge you here because I think this is a real danger for us. And so let me just give you some charges here. First, don't love the preaching here. Love the Christ that is preached here. See what I'm saying? 
So if I, as a preacher, you walk out and go, I loved that sermon, I've failed as a preacher. If you walk out going, I love the Jesus I heard preached today, then I've preached a good sermon. See the difference? I love, or this, don't love worshiping God more than you love God. Some of us love the experience of worship more than we actually love God in worship. Do you see the difference? Be careful, friends. Don't love passionate prayers to Jesus more than you love the Jesus we pray passionately to. Right? Don't love that we gather together, but love the Christ who gathers us. See? Don't love the benefits of Christ more than you love Christ himself. We don't come to God to get stuff. We come to God to get God. And these Galileans loved Jesus because he was good for the brand. The Samaritans loved Jesus because of Jesus. Big contrast there. Jesus is not a performer. He's not a marketing boost. He's not our homeboy. He's the God of the universe. Come to satisfy our souls. So let's turn now to verses 46 through 53. And look at the development of faith in Jesus from this, this, uh, this official. So verse 46. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, which is about 20 miles away, just to give you a little bit of proximity here, Cana is kind of up in the hills. Capernaum is down on the Sea of Galilee. And so it's way down to, to Capernaum, about 20 miles away. At Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. Okay, so the official, uh, the way this word is used is he's probably a high-ranking official in Herod Antipas's um, administration. Um, and Herod Antipas is not a very good Jew. He's taken his brother's wife. He's living in very much open sin. And so this Roman official, or this, this official, I don't know if he's Jewish or not, but at, at least he would not be well thought of among the Jewish community. Okay, that's my understanding there. So this is not a guy that you would expect to respond well to Jesus. He's not a good Jewish guy with the right necessarily upbringing. He's not the kind of guy you would expect to respond well to Jesus. Uh, Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked him what hour, he asked them what hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. Okay? So just like the Samaritan woman, this is not the one that you would expect to respond well to Jesus. I want you to look for just a moment at the steps in this man's journey. Look at the steps in this man's journey to Jesus. First, he hears reports of what Jesus has done for others. Right? He hears of Jesus and what he's done to transform other people's lives. He's heard testimonies of Jesus. He's heard of these testimonies. And then what he does is in response to these testimonies of what Jesus has done, 
he brings his need, he brings his desperate need to Jesus. He knows that he has a problem, a need that he can't fix. His son is dying. And so he is going to leave what could be the last few moments with his son in the hope that this Jesus who has healed others may heal his son. And so he climbs way up in the hills to Canaan. And can you just imagine what that's like? Your child is dying. You got one hope. And you may be surrendering your last moments with your dear son. In the hope that this Jesus may, just may, work on your behalf. Do you see the desperation that this man would be feeling? And so then he approaches Jesus... So he went to him, he asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. And Jesus says something very strange. Look at verse 48. Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Which is not the most compassionate thing to say. Right? What's interesting here is the word you is plural. So he's speaking to the man, but he's actually speaking to everybody else. Remember, he's just been welcomed in Galilee. Yay, Jesus is home. Fist bumps, right? Our homeboy's home. And Jesus is like, none of you are going to believe unless I do more tricks, right? And he's testing the man, but he's also indicting everyone. He's indicting everyone that they're just there for the show. Like they just kind of want the next trick. And he's challenging the man, are you like that? Is this kind of just a ruse to kind of see me do something? And look what the man does. The man is challenged by Jesus. Are you coming to me rightly? Are you really coming to me with a need, or are you coming here because you want to see something amazing? And here's what the man says. Like, just imagine this man, tears in his eyes. Sir, come down before my child dies. I just, I just want my son to live. And here's what Jesus says. In a sense, he passes the test, doesn't he? I'm not here for some show, Jesus. I'm here because I have a need I can't meet. And I'm asking. I've heard, I've heard testimony that you can do this. Would you? He's just humbly laying himself out before Jesus. Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. And look what the man says. The man, or look what the man does. The man believed the word. That Jesus spoke and went on his way. Can you imagine that walk home? What is that walk home like? I hope this works, right? He believes Jesus' word, and he's like, okay. Submitted to Jesus, hoping, believing, not yet able to see whether or not this is true. Just walking in hope, in faith, that everything he's heard about Jesus is true. So he hears the report of what Jesus has done for others. He brings his desperate need to Jesus. He trusts in the gracious promise of Jesus and actually walks it out. He goes back home, going his way in hope. And then look what happens, verse 51. As he's going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked him, he asked them, when did he begin to get better? What is he thinking? I think Jesus did this. I don't think my hope in, was in vain. I don't think my request was in vain. 
I think Jesus may have met my need. And so here's what happens. So when he asked them what hour he began to get better, they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, which would be 1 p.m., the fever left him. And the father knew that was the hour that Jesus had said to him, your son will live. He knew it. He knew it. All along he'd been hoping, his, his faith had not yet been sight, but he was trusting in him. And it says, and he himself believed and all his household. So see the steps of coming to faith in Jesus. Hearing reports of what Jesus has done for others. Bringing this desperate need to Jesus. Trusting in the gracious promises of Jesus. Walking out in hope, even though we don't yet see it all. And then eventually he brings others to faith in Jesus. It then becomes his testimony that leads his whole household to faith in Jesus. Right? This is not about big spectacular signs and wonders. This is about Jesus meeting the need of a man and him believing in Jesus. So if you're not a believer today, let me just say this. You will never come to Jesus until you feel your need for him. You will never truly come to him in saving faith until you understand your need for him. And the Bible tells us that our need for him comes from the fact that we are sinners. And there is no way that we can escape the wrath of a just God unless that God provides for us. And Jesus came. And our need for righteousness was met in Jesus. He is the one who became our righteousness. And we needed someone to bear our penalty for sin. And on the cross, he bore our penalty. And then he rose again from the dead so that we too could be raised to newness of life. If we will trust in him. Here's what Derek Thomas says. He says, faith is saying at its most basic and simple level, I need Jesus. Not Jesus plus, not Jesus only, but Jesus only, I should say. Not Jesus plus, but Jesus only. And I think that's what we see here. Contrasted with all the other people who should understand who Jesus is, is this official who's meeting Jesus for the first time, and he's coming in simple faith. And he believes. To those of us who are believers, I have this question. When was this official actually saved? You look at the process. Was it when he heard the reports of Jesus? Was it in his desperate need when he left home and went to Jesus? Was it the moment he asked Jesus? Was it the moment that he, receiving Jesus' word, then went home? Was it the moment that all of a sudden he realized Jesus had actually healed his son? Like you just have several times here where he believed, right? Where did, was he saved? To be honest with you, I don't know. But all of those steps were necessary. Right? All of those steps are necessary for our salvation as well. So if you are sitting there and you're like, I don't know when. I don't know the day or the moment when I was saved. That's okay. I actually wonder if the official would go, I love what J.D. Greer says. He says, if being saved is like sitting in a chair, like you're trusting the chair, you've sat down, you were standing, now you're sitting, you're depending on the chair. The best way to know if you are truly saved is not to remember the moment when you sat in the chair, but to see, am I sitting in the chair now? Right? This official, I don't know when, at what point, he came, he was actually had saving faith, but the whole process was saving faith. Does that make sense? So maybe you don't know the exact date of your conversion. Just keep trusting Jesus. Just keep walking in hope. Keep trusting his word. If you're trusting in Jesus now, then you are saved. 
when that started is less important than the fact that you continue to trust and walk in him right then lastly we see the demonstration of power from jesus verse 54 here's what john the author says this was now the second sign that jesus did when he came from judea to galilee he had done the changing of water into wine in chapter 2 he had down in judea he had done so this is actually the third sign overall in the book of john but it's the second one in galilee in the northern part of the kingdom and here's what we see about Jesus here. Here's what Jesus demonstrates. First of all, this sign tells us that Jesus has power over disease. Jesus has power over disease. The authority of the creator. Jesus says, your son will be well. And 20 miles away, that disease had to obey Jesus. That's what you find in the gospels, is that the winds and waves obey Jesus. Demons obey Jesus. Diseases obey Jesus. Dead bodies obey Jesus, right? The only thing in the whole universe that has the audacity to disobey Jesus is you and me. Isn't that crazy? It's humbling, isn't it? Jesus has power over disease. Secondly, Jesus has power over distance. He can heal at a distance. The man wants him to come heal his son. Come, come touch my son. Come, come heal him. I understand that. And Jesus is like, I can do it from here. Which means he has authority over the whole universe. One theologian said that there's not one square inch in the whole universe that Jesus doesn't declare that's mine. Right? I can heal from here. He has the omnipresence of authority. The omnipresence of the creator. And he has power over time. He did it instantly. There was no delayed healing. So that disease, the distance, the time, he could heal instantaneously from a distance with a word. He, this is evidence that he is the son of God. And here's the purpose of the seven signs in the book of John. The signs are not ends in themselves, but means to an end. They are to strengthen our faith. Jesus said, uh, John says in John 20, 31, these are written so that you may believe. He did many signs. I'm just going to list a few here. And these are reason enough for you to believe. So the turning water into wine, the cleansing of the temple, the healing of the nobleman's son, and what we're going to see, this is the third sign. As we get up the seven signs, each of them increase in amazingness, if that's a word. They increase in glory and intensity. The miracles don't save anyone. Hearing with faith does. Okay? So I want to close out here. Maybe you've, uh, maybe you've heard of these guys, Rhett and Link. Have you heard of these guys? These guys are famous YouTube celebrities. They have been. They were one of the very first uh, YouTube celebrities, like in the first few months. And they just do ridiculous videos on the internet, and people just eat it up. Anybody watched any of their videos? Okay, I knew Sarah would. Yeah, okay, there you go. <laughs> so, Rhett and Link just recently uh, released a couple of episodes on their podcast, on their video podcast on YouTube. Four episodes, actually, that just talk about their deconstruction of Christian faith. Their losing of their faith in Jesus. They grew up in evangelical uh, families. They grew up familiar with Jesus. Um, uh, Rhett was, uh, said that he prayed a prayer when he was six and Link when he was ten. And what's interesting is that as you hear their story, they had a band when they were in high school. And uh, they were like, we didn't really want to be a Christian band, but... We needed, a, we needed kind of a venue, and so we played at our youth group. And then they went, and they uh, went to Campus Crusade for Christ in college, and they just loved the production of that and wanted to get in front of people. And so they had this familiarity with Jesus, 
But as you listen to their stories, it doesn't seem like at any point in their life they actually had a genuine need for Jesus. They kind of grew up around it, and as long as Jesus kind of helped them along and gave them an audience, and then once they became YouTube celebrities, they really hid their Christianity quite a bit. And eventually they discard, they essentially discarded it entirely. Because I think, in a sense, they were a good illustration of what Jesus as your homeboy kind of leads to. It doesn't stand up for very long. And as long as Jesus was attractive and helpful to them, they were willing to identify with Jesus. But then once they got to a certain point, it didn't seem like uh, this was actually that much help to them. There was no driving need to, for Jesus. Now, I have a lot of compassion to them. I'm not trying to rail against them. I hope that in their rejecting of kind of a casual Jesus, they'll come to see the real Jesus. And that's really, um, in a sense, the faith that they had looks like it maybe needed to be deconstructed because it was built on a very, a very small Jesus. And here's what one uh, apologist said named Elisa Childers. She said, Christians should be encouraged to remember that for every Red and Link, there's also a Lee Strobel, a J. Warner Wallace, a Holly Ordway, a C.S. Lewis, a Rosario Butterfield, who tests their beliefs against evidence and found their atheism wanting. With the help of the Holy Spirit, they became convinced that Christianity is true as they gaze deeply at Christ's beauty. They loved not the things of the world, but repented of sin and put their hope and trust in him. Christians today must be ready to provide a compelling defense for Christ and provide an alternative story to deconversion. And the reality is, is to come to Jesus. To come to Jesus in desperate need like this official. Come to him as the Son of God who came to save us to trust in his word, to walk in hope, and to, and to share this good news with others. And that's what this official did. And what's amazing is this sign was just for one family, right? This sign that now for thousands of years has been recorded in the Gospel of John as evidence for our faith in Jesus happened to this man. And so now I pray that God's work in our life, God's transformation of our life would be a sign to others. That our whole households would come to faith in Jesus. If Jesus is our homeboy and our faith is like bumper stickers, we'll miss out on what God wants to be for us in Christ. Let's be like this official and make Jesus our center and not our sidekick. Let's let him work in us in such a way that we will be a sign and testimony to others. Like this official, may we enjoy, display, and share Jesus with each other in the world. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this uh, section of scripture. God, we thank you for preserving it for us all these thousands of years, for inspiring John to write it. And, uh, and not a story that we see in any of the other gospels. It's unique here because John has something to tell us. That it is a dangerous thing to be overly familiar with Jesus and to lose our awe of him. To in some way just use him when it's convenient and put him away when it's not convenient. Lord, may we be like this official son that we just come to Jesus in our desperate need and we believe what he says. And Lord, I pray that we would walk in the hope that what he said is true and that when we see evidences that, that our faith is uh, become sight, when we begin to see the glorious realities come to fruition in our lives, we see prayers answered, Lord, I pray that, that, that we would bear witness and just like this man, our, our household, our whole household, would come to hear of Jesus because of the work he is doing in us. Lord, I pray that we would be assigned to others, that Jesus is the Savior of the world. We ask these things in your name. Amen.
Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.